Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Well, we're on the new heaven and the new earth. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's going to be an exciting time, isn't it? The millennium takes place. We're going to look at some of the details of the end of the millennium and then go into the, the new heaven and the new earth. I'll tell you, when you begin to think through all the different aspects of this, again, this is just a 30,000-foot view, and we're kind of sprinting through it. We've done so all year, and I just want to thank you for your patience in that. Uh, it was really funny to me. Uh, at the beginning of the year, I had people coming to us saying, you're supposed to go through the whole Bible, and we're in week eight, and we're still in Genesis. And uh, I said, hang in there, hang in there. And about five weeks later, six weeks later, I had people coming to me going, you need to slow down, man. You need to slow down. So it's been fun. When we talk about a new heaven and a new earth, we're talking about something qualitatively brand new. We're not talking about something that is like the old. We're talking about something that we really can't even begin to understand. We get pictures of it. We get pictures of it, but we really don't have a full understanding of it. It's going to be amazing, and namely because the last enemy, death, will be defeated. It will be abolished. And there will be no sin. There will be no unrighteousness. And it, this is something that I think is important to understand. As believers in Christ who have been glorified by that time, as those who have gone through the tribulation and have resurrected bodies, everybody entering into that new heaven, new earth stage or age will not only not have sin in their lives, but the potential to sin will be gone. I want you to think about that for a moment. Sin is devastating. It is devastated. It has impacted every one of our lives in ways that we really don't even fully comprehend. And until it is abolished, until it is taken out, until we have glorified bodies, and until it is gone, where it's no longer a threat, it's no longer even a thought, it's not a part of the fabric of anything, whether it's creation and or any created being, whether it's the universe, whether it's the firmament, whether it's earth itself. Until it is completely abolished, we really, really don't have a full understanding of the impact that it has had in every one of our lives in multiple, multiple ways. When we hit the end of the millennium in Revelation chapter 20, there are several issues here that take place. First of all, Satan is released to deceive the nations. In Revelation chapter 20, you can see this, verses 7 through 10, and we're going to read that in a moment. Gog and Magog at that moment take place. If you look at Revelation 20, 7 through 8, it says, When the thousand years are completed, completed, that means obviously over. <laughs> we get through the tribulation, uh, right, We have Armageddon, we have the binding of Satan, he's thrown into the pit, not the lake of the fire, the pit, it's a holding place. He is bound so that he cannot roam this earth deceiving humanity. We enter into this millennial period where the Lord rules and reigns from Jerusalem. Believers rule and reign with him and contingent upon our faithfulness here and the reward that God has for us our service to the Lord during that period of time begins to be based upon our faithfulness here. At the end of this time, there is a group of people that have been born on earth. If you remember during the millennium, there will be 
people who have non-glorified bodies, and as a result, they will be marrying, and they will have children, and therefore, a sin nature will be passed along. And some of those individuals will give lip service to the king who is ruling and reigning in Jerusalem, but they really haven't given him their heart. And Satan will be released, and he will go about deceiving the nations. Revelation 20, 7 through 8 says this, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. What a sad testimony to a thousand years of the Lord Jesus Christ ruling and reigning directly from Jerusalem, that there would actually be people on this earth who have been born, who have had long lives on the whole, who have experienced the peace that comes because Christ is ruling, who have experienced creation even being released to a degree from its bondage of sin, the lion and the lamb, the wolf and the lamb, and all the different aspects of it. In the midst of it, their hearts are still not surrendered to Christ. Satan will deceive them, and they will come to wage war against the Lamb, and it's over in a moment. The Lord destroys them. At that point, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire along with the beast and the prophet. In verse 10, the great white throne judgment takes place, the second resurrection. All of the unbelievers from history past into this particular moment, all will stand before the Lord of the great white throne judgment. The books will be opened and the book will be opened. The book is the Lamb's book of life. If their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, then that means they have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They are not saved. The books will be opened, speaking of the individual books for each person, and their works will be what judges them, what ultimately condemns them. And all of the lost will then Face the second death, which is called the lake of fire. For eternity, folks. The end of this age and the beginning of a new one. When we get to this moment, suddenly we come into something that is very hard to comprehend. Language is used that is really interesting. I believe in a literal millennium, and I believe in a literal end of the age and a new age. But obviously, figurative language can be used in order to describe what is being seen, and some of that has all kinds of translational uh, difficulties, if you will. But there are several things that are very clear. First of all, there's the end of death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 through 26, Paul writes this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, meaning the first of the resurrection. After that, those who are Christ said his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. He jumps immediately to the post-millennial moment. He says, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And then in verse 26, he says this, the last enemy that will be abolished is what? Is death. See, during the millennium, there is still death. 
During the millennium, if somebody who is a young person dies in early age, there will be weeping because there could be longevity of life in a way that hasn't been seen on this earth since the beginning. The very end and the very last enemy to be defeated is death, which is a remarkable moment. Why is it that we face death? It's because of sin. And we know sin entered in through Adam. Sin spread to all men, therefore all die. This enemy that the Lord will defeat at the final moment going into this new heaven and new earth, this new age, is the enemy of death. The second thing that's very clear is that there's an end of the current heaven and earth. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and following, Peter writes this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. If you jump down to verse 12, in the second part of verse 12, that same chapter, it says the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Peter brings up the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, I believe, begins at the moment that the rapture of the church takes place, which is the same time that the day of Christ begins. And they are ages, they are stages, they are two timelines that have different agendas. One is for believers, the other is for the bringing about of all that we've discussed in terms of the end of the death and the abolishing of death, the end of the millennium and into this new age. The day of the Lord encompasses it all, the tribulation, the millennium, etc. And Peter jumps immediately from that moment when it begins to the very end where he makes it very clear that the entire earth, the firmament, the heavens, if you will, will be destroyed by fire. What's fire a picture of in the Word of God? It is always a picture of purification. The Lord will literally purify this realm that has been impacted in so many different ways by sin. He will destroy it. It will be over. And as a result, death will be defeated. Anybody say amen to that? <laughs> Praise God, right? When we think about that moment, we think about how God is going to regenerate everything. It's incredible to begin to think about that. Well, there's also the end of unrighteousness, and that's the end of sin. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and following, Peter says this, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, they're going to be melted, they're going to be burned up. What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That, that word hastening literally has the idea of an intense longing for it. It's not that we can hasten this or make it come quicker. That's not necessarily the best of translations. He says, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What is righteousness? Righteousness is activity that conforms to God's standard of holiness. Activity that conforms to God's standard of holiness. Unrighteousness is activity that does not measure up to God's standard of holiness. Folks, only Christ in us 
working through us as we yield our lives to him can accomplish righteousness through our lives, activity that conforms to his standard of holiness. What we're talking about in a new heaven and a new new day is that righteousness will reign, righteousness will dwell, righteousness will have a permanent abode. There will never be a moment where unrighteousness takes residence within that new age. Think about that. That's amazing. I commented about this, and I think it's worth reflecting on again. Can you imagine never, ever, ever, ever even having a thought enter your mind, much less acting on that thought that would be contrary to God's holiness? Never having a relational problem, never wondering whether or not your motives are correct or not correct. Never having sin enter into the picture at all. Never worrying about, are we really following the Lord? Are we truly walking by faith? I I would say it this way too, never needing to be corrected for it. And all the children said, amen. (laughs) Right? Think about that. That's amazing. You think about holiness and purity. You think of righteousness dwelling and reigning and ruling in the sense of Christ and all that conforms to his standard when it comes to our activity. There's never a moment where we have to doubt. There's never a moment where we have to fear. There's never any of those things that will take place in the new heaven and the new earth. I love how the Grace New Testament commentary puts it. It says, the coming of the day of God brings with it new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Unlike the old heavens and earth that have been plagued with the presence of sin ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, the new world will be a place where righteousness will be truly and permanently at home. Wow. Imagine that. Well, there's not only the end of things, there's the beginning of things. There's the beginning of the new age in Revelation 21. There's a new age. What, what's that going to look like? What's this new heaven and what's this new earth? In Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5, John records this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And again, that word new means qualitatively brand new. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no water. It just means that there's a reconstituting of how we think about water. I don't personally like the ocean that much. Very large, dangerous predators live there and lurk there. God bless those baby seals. (laughs) They're... I remember one time, sorry, this is totally digression, but since I got on it, I, we, were, we were at uh, uh, near Daytona Beach, and, and some of the guys in New Smyrna, New Smyrna's right next to Daytona, and we were, some of the guys were fishing, and they were catching little baby hammerhead sharks. And it, I'm, I'm slow sometimes, I'm just, you know, and one of our chaperones, a lady, she was staring at that little baby hammerhead shark And she looked at me because all our kids, there was like 50 students out there swimming. And she looked at me and she said, you know, I'm not so much worried about the babies. I'm kind of worried about where mom and dad are. (laughs) 
I never swam the same in the ocean after that. <laughs> I always had jaws on my mind anyway, but you know, that would change me, you know. I, I, God bless the beach. No more sea. doesn't mean there's no more water. It just means it's reconstituted. It's different. There's a new Jerusalem. It says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It's amazing. This new Jerusalem, made for believers, made for believers to dwell. The description is made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. There's a new rule, if you think of it this way. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. His dwelling place is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Think about that. God and his presence uninhibited with us forever. Incredible. Never have to, to worry about, well, <laughs> am I praying correctly? Lord, are you hearing me? We know that he hears. We just tend to not like necessarily the <laughs> answer sometimes, right? Sometimes it's no, sometimes it's yes, sometimes and often it's just wait a little while. Never a problem with that, never an issue. God dwelling amongst his people. There's a new experience, and I think all of us can say a hearty amen to this. Verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. No, no impact of sin. There's, there's no impact of unrighteousness. There's no stain of it even. It's been completely and absolutely cleansed. And as a result, it's not a part of the fabric of this new age in any way at all whatsoever. It's not a part of this new heaven and new earth. God dwelling in his presence, absolute, permeating all. Nothing to separate us. Folks, this is what we were created for. We were created to have perfect union with God, perfect relationship with the Lord, where nothing would separate us, nothing would inhibit our enjoyment of God forever. And this is when that takes place. We begin to think about that, and you begin to think about the fact there's no more death, there's no more mourning, there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow. It's overwhelming. What a hope! What an assurance. Hope isn't just a wish. It's not the, 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 the presence under the Christmas tree. And we think maybe we got this gift that we so diligently wrote to Santa about. No, no. This is what God has said. And it's absolute because he has said it. And as a result, we can totally depend that this will take place. As believers, we will enjoy this. A new experience. In Isaiah, he speaks to this in verse 20, chapter 25, verse 8. He says, he will swallow up death for all time. Again, this is the last enemy abolished. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Don't you love that? The Lord decreed it. Can anybody thwart the will of God in the midst of this? Absolutely not. Satan's gone forever. Sin has been dealt with and death has been abolished. 
Verse 5 of Revelation, he says, he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Boy, the emphasis here, the emphasis. God said it. He's promised it. He's decreed it. Therefore, it will take place. John, write these things. They're faithful and true. They will come about. The city of Jerusalem is an interesting one. Chapter 21 works through this. It's for believers, the people of God. There's access to it. The gates are named after the tribes of Israel leading to the territories of the tribes of saved Israel. In verse 12, the foundation stones are named after the apostles in verse 14. 1,500 miles square as well as high. It's kind of a cube, if you will. 1,500 miles. That's an indescribable amount of area within this city. It's made of costly jewels. We know this well because we say it all the time, laughingly. The streets are of gold. Right? We can't take it with us. What's the joke? The guy that was allowed to bring whatever he wanted and he packed a whole bunch of gold into his backpack, came before uh, Peter, so to speak, and so well, what do you got? He opens it up and it's gold. And he said, why'd you bring street pavement? You know, what's up with that? <laughs> You thought that was so valuable, huh? No need of the sun or the moon as the lamb will be the light. That's incredible. What do all these things within this new Jerusalem have in common? They, they all reflect brilliantly light. And here it's the light of the lamb. It's the light of Christ illumining everything. There's no more night in verse 25. It's an amazing city. In chapter 22, you have the river of the water of life, you have the tree of life and the healing of the nations by its leaves. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 22, he says, He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. There will no longer be any sin to cause a curse on this earth and in this new age. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Commentary puts it this way, while it's true that the life-giving and pristine river that flows from God's throne may be a source of physical refreshment for people throughout all eternity, it surely symbolizes the everlasting enjoyment of God and the life of God, eternal life that will flow to all people as well. What a beautiful picture. You drink of the water of life symbolically expressing the reality of what God has promised to believers today, and that is eternal life. Well, how do we live in light of these things? It's interesting, there's two, at least, ideas here. First, there's the warning from the Lord to heed what he has to say. He's been telling John, his servants have been telling John, write these things down. They are faithful and they are true. They will come about. 
In Revelation 22, 7, it says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book, who listens to what God has to say and responds affirmatively to him. Wiersbe puts it this way. Three times in this closing chapter, John wrote, I, Christ, come quickly. But he has delayed his return for nearly 2,000 years. Yes, he has, and Peter tells us why. God wants to give this sinful world opportunity to repent and be saved. What a beautiful truth. 2,000 years ago, he came to John and said, write these things down. They're faithful and true. And oh, by the way, I am coming quickly. And 2,000 years have passed. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ wants every individual to be saved. And he wants to give the opportunity to all to believe in him. There's no question about that. What a beautiful, beautiful truth. What grace. What goodness. What love. But there's also the issue of walking in his righteousness. Let me take you back briefly to 2 Peter 3, verses 11 through 13. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, we know this is going to happen. And since these things are going to happen, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? How should we be living our lives right now in light of what's to come? Looking for, hastening, longing for the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. What is it that we ought to be doing right now? How should we be living right now? What ought to be the truth of our lives in reality? Not just in what we say, but in our conduct, in godliness, in righteousness, as we yield to Christ and as Christ transforms us and renews, renews us, as we're conformed to the image of the Lord, as we get into the word of God and our minds are being renewed so that we understand what God's will for our lives are and we begin to learn how to walk with him and appropriate what he has accomplished on our behalf as he's come to live within us in order to do through us us what he knows that without him we could never do on our own. What is it that we ought to be living like? Folks, we ought to be yielded to Christ. We ought to be surrendered to him. We ought to be spending every day saying, Lord, here's my life. Use it in whatever way you choose. How attached are we to the things of this world? How much like the world have we literally become? And yet there's coming a day when sin will be taken out of it and all the things that we've just looked at will take place as the people of God. How are we walking in such a way that God is being glorified through us in our activities, in our actions, in our attitudes, in our relationships with one another as a church body and our focus to say yes to him and trust him with the results and to walk with him in every sense? Folks, when we look at the end times, we recognize that they are going to take place. It ought to shape the way we make decisions today. I want to challenge you again and encourage you. January 1st, we're going to have a, a special service. It's the beginning of a new year. And I want to challenge you as your pastor to go to people. And if you need to go to somebody, you do it and get it right if there are things that have taken place, if you have sin in your life, whatever that may be, the Holy Spirit will convict us. Trust the Holy Spirit to do so. 
Go to the Lord and say, is there any area in my life that I haven't yielded to you? Is there anything in my life that needs to be corrected? Lord, do a work in me. Stop looking around, worrying about what everybody else thinks, worrying about what everybody else is going to say. Forget it. Come before the Lord and say, Lord, do a work in me. And then trust the Lord to reveal what he wants you to do about it. What is God doing in our lives? What is God doing in our church? How are we entering into a new year where we can come together as the body of Christ, arm in arm, we can take communion, we can celebrate the life of Christ poured out for each and every one of us, and we can say, you know what? We want to make sure that we're first and foremost rightly related with the Lord, and then as a result of that, we want to make sure that we're rightly related with one another. If there's any attitude out there, if there's any activity that's not of you, Lord, would you cleanse us of it? And are we willing to agree with God in it? That's the question. Folks, how should we be living in light of what's to come? We ought to be walking today as closely related to the Lord as we absolutely know how, surrendered and yielded fully to him in every area, whether it's in our families, whether it's in the church body, whether it's in our relationships with people in the community, it doesn't matter. The question is, how are we related to the Lord? And then what is God leading us with regard to making sure that we're rightly related to one another? I love Philippians chapter 3. Verses 12 and following. Because Paul, Paul understood his sin nature. <laughs> he had lived it. He had experienced it. He wrote about it. But one thing he says here that I think all of us need to hear over and over again. He says, not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, complete. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, meaning complete, have this attitude, and if, anything, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. See, there, there's a moment for believers where we realize God's convicting us of something and we agree with the Lord and then we receive the promise from him that he will cleanse us of it. And what do we do? Do we wallow in it? Do we continue to, to just stay in it? No, no, no. We stand up, we get up, and we move on. And folks, <laughs> we need to do that. It's time to move on. Praise God. He's got new things, new things. The question is, are we listening, are we hearing, and are we willing? Because God is awesome. He's an awesome God. Folks, how should we be living in light of the things that we've looked at, the things that are to come? I'm going to tell you something. We ought to be living in holiness and in godliness. In other words, we ought to be yielded to him, surrendered to him, fully and absolutely available to him, no matter what it is that he calls us to and or asks of us, knowing that he will give us the very strength that is necessary to walk in what it is that he calls us into. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to say, yes, Lord? Are we willing to walk wholeheartedly 
with our Lord. Our utmost, as Oswald says, for his highest. All that I am poured out for the Lord because I know what he's promised. I know where I'm headed. And I can rejoice in all that God has done, is doing, and has promised will do. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.